following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So, a quick show of hands. How many of you like to read mystery novels? Wow, a lot of you. How many of you like to read um, mystery novels when you were a kid? Any any Hardy Boys fans in the room? Any Nancy Drew? Encyclopedia Brown? Yeah, that's right. You're my people. You are my people. Encyclopedia Brown. I like that one the best because it was always a story about how a brainy kid used his smarts to get the school bully in trouble with the local authorities, but somehow managed in all of this, week after week, occasion after occasion, never to get beaten up, <laughs> which seemed to me to be a perfect world, but I'll tell you a little bit about the type of kid I was. So... Another quick poll. Uh, What's the best part of the mystery book? How many people, whether it's Encyclopedia Brown or Sherlock Holmes or James Patterson or whoever it is, how many people think the best part is after the mystery is solved and revealed? Wow. I'm the only one who likes that when it's finally, everything is clear and it's all, you can be, yeah, that's all right. So apparently a lot of you, show of hands, prefer the, all the leading up to that. You prefer the mystery. It's more fun before you know. Wow. I was sure that most of you would say that the best part was when the mystery was solved. That's the moment. That's the moment. That's the whole reason you get there, right? Well, apparently you are the type who are disappointed when the fun is over. (laughs) That changes my transition into the spiritual part of my message slightly. (laughs) But that's okay. I love you anyway. What I was going to say is that sometimes in life we encounter spiritual mysteries. Um, and there isn't always as satisfying a solution to that type of mystery. Sometimes it seems like the mystery is what we have. That's what we're left with. And the solution is not, oh, it was, you know in the parlor with the candlestick, (laughs) but rather the solution is that you dwell in the mystery. That's the state of being. Apparently all of you love that. (laughs) Maybe it's not so fun in your spiritual lives as it is when you're reading a novel. I don't know. That having been said, though, there is at least one, probably more than one, but for the purposes of today's discussion, at least one great spiritual mystery That has been solved definitively. And the Apostle Paul writes about this mystery in his letter to the Christians in the early church in the city of Ephesus. So we're going to look at the book of Ephesians chapter 3, first nine verses of that chapter, uh, which is one of the assigned readings from the lectionary for today. And um, I want you to count the number of times that he says the word mystery in this passage, all right? Ephesians 3, 1 through 9. He says, This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. 
In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And what is this mystery? Here he's going to tell us. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. How many times did you say mystery? Four in just nine short verses. If you were doing a critical analysis of this as a work of literature, one of the first things you would do is look for repeated words. And I encourage you to do that when you read the Bible, to study it. Look for words that are repeated because they are most likely important. But this mystery, this great conundrum, this great secret that has been revealed from humanity for all of history up to that point is now solved definitively that through Jesus Christ the doors to God's salvation have been flung wide open. No longer are people to be saved by virtue of their birth into the biological family of Abraham or their observance of the law of Moses or by their rituals and sacrifice. But they are to be saved instead by the sheer abundant grace of God. What, what Paul calls in a beautiful phrasing, the boundless riches of Christ. You ever think about how much money Bill Gates has? You think about how much your house cost and how many times he could buy that before he felt the pain in his checking account? It's almost absurd to think about. You can't count that high. So much money, such boundless riches... That we can't even comprehend it. And that's what Paul says is, is what God's grace is like. The boundless riches of Christ. Salvation, which was formerly understood to be centered around the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, is now open to everybody. As he says, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs. They, just like the Jews, are now going to inherit God's boundless riches. Which brings us to today's topic. As I mentioned when I welcomed you into this room this morning, today we are celebrating the day of Epiphany as we conclude this Christmas tide series. Now, true liturgists are going to be driven crazy by that because Epiphany isn't until the 6th, today's the 4th, and Epiphany actually marks a new season on the church calendar. It's not part of Christmas tide, but that's how we roll around here. We kind of are liturgical and historical, but we adapt it and drive everybody nuts that way. So that's how, we, that's how we roll. That's what life is like here. But regardless of the date, we're observing Epiphany today. And Epiphany is the day when we celebrate Christ's revelation, his revealing. So think of Epiphany as a light bulb over Encyclopedia Brown's head. It's the moment when he realized that, and now I, can't, I cannot pull the character's name out of my, my head. Who is the bully in Encyclopedia Brown? Some of you must know this. Right? 
Bugs Meany. He realizes how and why Bugs Meany. Like, like the cops wouldn't have started by looking at the guy named Bugs Meany. Come on. But, so it's a revealing of Jesus. Now in the Western church, the particular revealing that we talk about at Epiphany is the revealing of Jesus as salvation to the Gentiles. Interestingly enough, given what we have done today in our service, in the Eastern Church, Epiphany means a different revelation of Jesus. And in the Eastern Church, Epiphany is the celebration of Christ's baptism, his revealing as the Son of God. So we have all these things intertwining today in a, in a completely unplanned and beautiful little thing. But as Paul said, this mystery has been revealed by the Spirit, that is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the key event in the gospels, the key story that demonstrates and teaches us this theological story, this theological revelation, this lesson, is the arrival of wise men from the East to worship the young child, Jesus. You, many of you know the story, even if you've never been in church a day in your life. You probably could sing some of the more obnoxious songs of, uh, of Christmas season. We Three Kings of Orient are, etc. You know the story somewhat. But I'd like to read it to you all the same. This comes from Matthew 2. And uh, I will read the first 12 verses. Since we're kind of half-heartedly liturgical around here, let me ask you to stand together for the reading of the Gospels, if not for liturgical purposes, at least to give you a little stretch break. If you'd like to follow along with with your Bibles, you may, but I'll just read it. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, quoting, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. We don't find in this passage that this is why, but later we find out that it's because he wants to know what age of children he should massacre to make sure that this king doesn't supplant him. Continuing in verse 8. Then he sent the wise men to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You can be seated. And by the way, the Old Testament passages from today's lectionary readings foretell this revelation, this epiphany. The the psalm, which we won't read from Psalm 72, talks about the kings of Tarshish 
rendering him tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba bringing gifts. Isaiah 60, which we read at the call to worship this morning, says, Darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you, his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So all of this is foreshadowed in the Hebrew Bible. So I want to suggest, um, quite briefly, I hope, that contained in this story from the Gospel of Matthew, there are three models for how to respond to this most momentous occasion in the history of God relating to His people. Three examples of how you could respond to the fact that Jesus has been born. God's forever king. The first is you could respond like the priests and scribes of Israel. Now, remember, when the, king, when the wise men came, Herod, on hearing their story, wanted to figure out where and when and how and all this stuff was going down. So who did he ask? He asked the priests and scribes of Israel, the religious experts, the ones who had been to seminary or the equivalent the ones who knew all the prophecies of the Old Testament backwards and forward, who could tell him what town the Messiah was to be born in. Did you notice what they did after they gave Herod this information? Apparently nothing. Strange men riding camels with large chests of expensive gifts came into their country and inquired about the Messiah, where he was to be born. And they looked at these strange men with camels and chests of gold and said, "Mm, Bethlehem, I'll draw you a map. Now I have to go back to my ivory tower where I will continue to think and pray and study and think and pray, and study, and become more and more knowledgeable, and increase my expertise, so that when the king asks me a question, I will have the right answer at my fingertips. We've never seen anything like that before, have we? Religious people who are so steeped in the Bible, who know it so well, and who love explaining it so much, This one's a little painful. That they couldn't see God moving even if he rode into their churches on a camel with a chest of gold. See, the allure of knowledge and expertise, the siren song of being the person who gets asked to explain the mysteries of the faith is so strong that it often pulls us away from God's actual work in the world. So that's the first option. You can respond like the priests and scribes with some biblical calculus and then go about your business. You could, secondly, respond like King Herod. Now, King Herod was a a puppet king. He was a tool of the empire that had been set to rule over the Jewish people in the Roman Empire. He was a politician, not a friendly one. He was slightly unhinged, 
killed members of his family to prevent them from taking his throne. And what he did was exploit the religiosity of others for personal political gain. Once again, we've never seen anything like that, have we? No American politician would ever exploit the religious beliefs of their constituents, would they? Saying, yes, you go on ahead. I would love to worship with you. I'll be right behind you. Just make sure you pass by the voting booth on your way. Make sure you have that flag up in your church so that everyone knows that you are actually also a tool of the empire. And then, behind the scenes, plotting to kill the very object of worship. Because that's what Herod was doing. If he couldn't get them to bring him Jesus, he was going to wipe out all the little boys. So that's the second option. You can respond like King Herod. I hope that you wouldn't choose that one. That's like the easy one on the test. (laughs) Which is not a country in South America, Brazil, Chile, or Chile with beans. (laughs) You know that's not the answer. Or thirdly, you could respond like the Magi. The Magi, which is the term that we give to these three wise men who sometimes are referred to as kings. And actually, there's probably not three of them. They just had three types of gifts. So we see three little figurines in the creche. But let's think about these fellows for a minute. Because obviously, that's what I'm going to suggest you should do, is is respond like the Magi. But that's a little bit weird if you think about who they actually are, which is... Definitely not Jewish people, definitely not religious insiders, people who practiced a a pagan pre-Islamic Persian religion, who were essentially astrologers, who followed this star across the known world for who knows what reason. You know, it doesn't the story doesn't often get told that they saw something in their horoscope and went to find Jesus. But that's not too far off from the truth. They used a method of divination of God's work in the world that was explicitly prohibited. They followed a star to the Messiah. And man, we could, I would love to talk and talk and talk about how God used these pagans uh, as they practiced their own pagan religion to bring them in to worship his son. So they were, uh, let's just be charitable and say that they were religiously confused. They didn't know all the right answers. And yet they were expectant and joyful When the star finally stopped over the house, they were overwhelmed with joy, Matthew tells us. So you have your choice. You can be an oblivious expert like the priests and scribes, or you can be a conniving power monger like King Herod, 
or you can be a mixed-up, uninformed stargazer with your head in the clouds like the Magi, the wise men from the East. But you see, the point is this. In Jesus, God wants to welcome people into His family, into His kingdom. Very often, people we would never expect And the prophet Isaiah, you may recall, says that our hearts should thrill and rejoice about this revealing, this epiphany, this throwing wide the doors to God's salvation family. But I think sometimes thrill and rejoice is not how we respond. I think sometimes we want to make God's grace so much stingier than it actually is. Because the problem is, So often, God wants to draw people to Himself that, in ways that we wouldn't expect, probably sometimes in ways we wouldn't condone, in ways that we would have a hard time accepting. And if Paul is right about the boundless riches of Christ, it is simply inevitable that someone is going to get a piece of that money, that spiritual inheritance, who you are really sure does not deserve it. But as soon as you say it that way, do you realize the folly in your thinking? Because you have, in one quick turn, turned the gospel upside down from where it's supposed to be and started to make it about what we deserve and what we have earned and what we are good enough to receive. That is the opposite of what the gospel is about. The gospel is about us receiving these boundless riches despite the fact that we have earned none of it. It's about God welcoming us into His family from our own brokenness and placing us, seating us at His table next to His Son, Jesus, to receive the feast of salvation. So I say, woe be to anyone who uses the Bible to scoff at someone's genuine quest to find Jesus. And man, is that easy to do. Woe to anyone who would exploit the journey of those who don't have it all figured out. And that would be easy to do too. And woe be to anyone who wants to hoard the boundless riches of Christ. To anyone who wants to block others from receiving their inheritance. It would be much better for us to be a band of pagan astrologers. Meandering across the desert in the dark. Because sometimes... It's better to stay bewildered by the mysteries of God. Will you pray with me? God, we join with the wise men from the East in being astonished at the mystery unveiled in the birth of your Son, Jesus, in your incarnation 
in the Word becoming flesh, living among us. We want to bathe in that mystery, in that revelation, in that epiphany. May it be for us as it was for them. May we choose the path of the Magi, even if it means bewildered meandering in the desert in the dark, over the path of religious expertise and political exploitation. We want to kneel before your Son and worship Him as our King. We subject ourselves to you and your love and your will in His name, through His grace. Amen. When the early church took its linguistic center from Greek to Latin, the word mystery became sacramentum. Sacrament is a holy mystery. We have practiced the sacrament of baptism this morning. And now I invite you to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is a table which physically is constrained, but spiritually is as wide as it needs to be for all people to come and dine with Jesus. And we sometimes invite you to the table thus. If Jesus himself were here, inviting you to dine with him, to have a meal with him, would your response be yes? If so, this table is for you because that's precisely what he has done. He has laid himself on this table, his body and blood, broken, shed, sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins as food for our souls. as a reminder of His goodness and grace and of the boundless riches of Christ. We will continue to worship in song this morning. If you are still trying to figure faith out and don't feel that this would be an appropriate response for you, that is okay. It's, it's acceptable to stay where you are, to sit, to think, to pray, to meditate, to observe. If you'd like to receive prayer, we will have a member of the prayer team here who would be happy to pray with you personally this morning, whatever it is you'd like to have prayer for. As we worship God, I invite you to remember the waters of your baptism and to partake of the body and blood of Christ Jesus. Let's continue to worship Him together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.